might be a parent, might be a school teacher, a university lecturer, a close friend, a counsellor, a pastor, a boss, a colleague. We've all had people who have significantly impacted and influenced our lives. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you are so because you've met the living God and you've never been the same. In the passage before us this morning, it records for us the time when the young, pious prophet Isaiah went up to the temple in Jerusalem and he did not come back out of that worship service the same way as he went in. Because there in the temple, he was given a vision, a life-transforming vision. What is? And as we come to study this passage this morning, it is my heartfelt prayer, as it is every Sunday morning, that we would encounter the living God in this service. And that as a result of meeting him, we would be changed. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. We are praying that you would meet with this morning. And if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, the prayer is the same. That as we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. As we walk through this passage, I have four simple headings for us. In Isaiah's life-transforming vision, he, first of all, encountered God in all his holiness. We'll spend most of our time looking at this point. And then we'll see that Isaiah came to recognize his own sinfulness. And then we'll see how Isaiah came to experience God's amazing forgiveness. And fourthly and finally, we'll see how Isaiah responds with a heart that is filled with thankfulness. So Isaiah encounters God in all his holiness. He recognizes his own sinfulness. He comes to experience God in his amazing forgiveness. And finally, he responds with a heart filled with thankfulness. Look then at verse 1 of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. We don't know the exact date, but it was round about 540 B.C. King Uzziah had had a long and prosperous reign. He'd been on the throne for 52 years, second only to King Manasseh, who reigned for 56. So, so King Uzziah celebrated his golden jubilee. And in his long and prosperous reign, he sought hard after the Lord. And Second Chronicles chapter 26 tells us, because of that, God prospered him. Israel became the marvel of the nations. But tragically and disastrous, disastrously, his reign ended in disgrace. Second Chronicles 26 tells us he grew proud. And pride leads to downfall. And in a brazen act, he walked right into the temple precincts, walked up to the altars, and he started burning incense. 
a task reserved only for the priests of Israel. And so God struck him with leprosy. The king was isolated and separated from his people as he saw out his days as a leper, all on his own. And in the aftermath of his death, this young pious prophet walks up to the temple in Jerusalem. No doubt with a heart that was heavy, a mind that was filled with the tragic end of his king. Perhaps the prayer that was on his lips was, God, we plead with you, give us a new king. Give us a better king. Give us a king that all the days of his life, his heart would be after you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. You know, it's remarkable about this vision that Isaiah had. It was such a timely vision. Israel's throne was empty, vacant. And yet God supernaturally opened Isaiah's eyes that he would see heaven's throne occupied with the living God reigning and ruling. Now let me be clear. This was a vision. This was not a dream. Isaiah was given by their Lord the ability to see things that truly exist, but the naked eye never gets the privilege to see. In this vision, he was enabled to see what happens in heaven. He was enabled to come right into the throne room of God. And in this glorious vision, he beheld God in his glory and grace. Now look again at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I've read that verse a hundred times. It only really struck me this week that before we actually read what Isaiah describes regarding the vision he saw, he doesn't actually describe the Lord. Rather, what he describes is a throne. The train of God's robe filling the temple. Angelic attendants flying around the throne. But nowhere do we have a description of the Lord. Why? Because how can anyone describe the indescribable? No one can see the Lord, and live. The first hymn we sang spoke to that reality. It says, Though the eye of sinful man thy glory cannot see. And so what Isaiah describes for us in this section is what he saw, but theologically speaking, it's what uh, theologians call divine accommodation. The throne, the train, the seraphim, the smoke, all of it is pictorial language. Trying to communicate to us something of what the Lord is like in all his glory and holiness. 
at the first thing that Isaiah saw in his vision. He says he saw the Lord sitting on his throne. What comes to your mind when you think about a throne? A throne, of course, is, is the seat of power. It's where a monarch sits. It's where a monarch rules. It's where a monarch exercises their judgment and their authority. Well, here in this vision, Isaiah catches a glimpse of heaven's throne. And there on the throne is God the sovereign. There on the throne is the Lord of Lords sitting upon it. Now remember the backdrop. The backdrop is Israel's throne is empty. Remember the backdrop. Israel's king has died in disgrace. Here Isaiah is enabled to catch a glimpse of heaven's throne. And even though there's lots of change and uncertainty in the nation. On heaven's throne, there is the eternal God with whom there is no change. He is the one who was, who is, and will always be. And and, and this must have brought Isaiah some real measure of comfort. God is upon his throne. And you know, brothers and sisters, we're living right now in a world where there is so much confusion, so much uncertainty. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's crisis with leadership and parliament. There's, there's all manner of things, economic uh, disaster looming. But as we come with Isaiah and as we catch a glimpse of the throne of God, we ought to draw immense comfort. Our God is upon his throne. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing puts him on high alert or alarm. Our God reigns. Notice what Isaiah goes on to say is is he's looking at this throne. He says the throne was high and lifted up. Put simply, the idea is it was exalted. So he's he's in this vision. He's seeing the heaven's throne room and, and, and the throne, it's high and it's lifted up. And here he's communicating to us God's lofty position over all things. God's transcendent nature over all things. He's above all authority. He's above all powers. He's above all dominions. You know, to, to transcend means to exist above and independent from. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. He was high and lifted up. All of this that he sees is impressing upon him the greatness and the grandeur of his God. But then notice what he sees next. He says, I saw the train of God's robe and it filled the temple. You may not know this, but in ancient times, kings demonstrated their majesty by the length of the train of their robes. The longer the train, well, it was an expression of the greater the majesty and splendor that belonged to the king. If a king subdued another kingdom and all of its citizens, his noble people would add to his train, the train of his robe, so that it would impress everyone with how great and glorious he is. And do you know what's fascinating about the Hebrew of this verse? It says that when Isaiah saw the train, the word really is hem. He saw the edge of God's garment. 
just the very edge of it. And notice what he says of it. It filled the temple. Isaiah has this huge impression that how glorious is our God. He is above and beyond. His glory and his greatness is so immense that all he has a glimpse of is the hem of his garment. This is one of the most mind-blowing, mind-stretching visions. The highest heaven cannot contain God. And just a glimpse of the hem of his garment is enough to show how glorious he is. Back in the, the early 70s, Jaya Packer, an English uh, Anglican theologian, wrote, one of the, the problems in modern uh, Britain is so many people have great thoughts about themselves and little thought or no thought about God. Well, here Isaiah, he has great and lofty thoughts as he gazes at the majestic immensity of God's robe. So he sees God in this vision upon his throne, high and lifted up. He sees a train of his robe filling the temple. But look at what he sees next. Verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two they covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. You know, this is the only place in the Bible we read about these creatures. Seraphim. And the Hebrew means literally to burn. So, so what we're told about these creatures, what we know of these creatures is they're fiery creatures. Now that's fascinating because today, everyone, they buy, people buy angels, right, as ornaments for their mantelpiece. They give them as gifts at Christmas. People love to speak about angels, guardian angels. People are so, so enamored by angels that, that, that the impression even in art is that they're these cute and cuddly beings. Not so, says Isaiah. When he saw these angels at the throne of God, they were literally ablaze, on fire, engaged in red-hot worship of the living God. Notice what he saw when he looked at them. He saw that they had two, they had six wings, and with two of them, they covered their faces. Now just think about this for a moment. These creatures were made to dwell in the holy presence of God. And with two of their wings, they had to cover their faces so that they dare not look into the dazzling brilliance and intensity of who God is. You know, in the same way that we teach our children and we, 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 we know never to look directly into the sun, these fiery creatures dare not look into the face of the son of righteousness. Isaiah's description here of them covering their faces. Do you know what it drives home for us? God is more holy than you and I ever thought he was. But notice Isaiah saw that they had two other wings and they covered their feet. 
in the presence of God. They use two of their other wings and they cover their feet. And, and this is perhaps an expression of their humility before the throne of God. They cover their feet in reverence and respect of who God is. And then we're told with the two other wings, they use them to fly. In other words, they're there right at God's bidding, ready to serve him whenever he calls. Now, it's easy for us to get enamored with these heavenly angelic beings, but the emphasis in Isaiah's vision is not in what he saw, but actually in what he heard now. Because he heard these seraphims singing to one another, and look at their song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Up until this point, we've been straining at words to try and describe something of God's glorious character. The angels capture it. One word. Holy. And when we describe God as holy, we're saying that that's the reality that distinguishes God as God. It's well been said that holiness is not one of God's attributes. Holiness is the sum and the total of all of God's attributes. Listen, we need to understand God is holy in everything that he is. He is holy in his power, holy in his faithfulness, holy in his Holy in his love, holy in his justice, holy in his grace, holy in his mercy. He is holy, holy, holy to the core of his being. And as the seraphims sing to one another in this scene, they just can't say holy once, not even twice, but three times. And, And if you know anything, this is the only occasion in the entire Bible, outside of Revelation, and the angels singing there, holy, 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 where something is raised to the third degree in repetition. So you have, for emphasis, king of kings, lord of lords, meaning God's the greatest king, God's the greatest lord. You have the book of Song of Songs. This is the greatest book of songs. And here we discover that the super superlative God is the holiest of the holiest of the holiest. Human language is not capable or adequate for describing God. R.C. Sproul wrote, There is only one attribute of God that is ever raised to this third degree of repetition in Scripture, and it is his holiness. Just so we don't miss it, God's holiness is truly extraordinary. It's beyond the seraphs. Yes, they sing of it, but they dare not gaze upon it. A.W. Tozer wrote this, we cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness. Sometimes if we want to try and grasp something that's incredible, this is what we do. We, We think of that thing and then we raise it to the concept of the highest degree we're capable of. God's holiness is simply, is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. 
God's holiness stands apart, unique, unapproached, incomprehensible, unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. Yeah, you may fear God's power. Yeah, you may admire God's wisdom. But listen, holiness, you cannot even begin to imagine. As we come to feel the weight of God's holiness, listen, there's something beautiful. It, yes, is truly something extraordinary. But notice this. It is also something truly thrilling. We get the idea from the fact that the, the angels are singing about it. Back and forth, back and forth, antiphonal praise, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the anthem of heaven. Holy, holy, holy. It's their true delight. It's their highest praise. It reverberates in heaven. You you feel something of the enthusiasm and the excitement of these beings as they sing regarding God's holiness. God's holiness thrills the seraphim to the bottom of their burning beings. So it sets them ablaze in song. Notice how they finish their chorus. And the whole earth is full of his glory. You know, when God's holiness goes public, we call it God's glory. It's the weightiness of who he is. when it comes to the weightiness of God the immensity of God we've got to remember and constantly remind ourselves God is not confined to one place the highest heavens cannot contain him neither is God trivial that we can confine him to one or two hours a week or neither is God so small that we can bring him into only just one area of our lives If the whole earth is full of his glory, God ought to be our all-consuming passion. Let's just press pause and be really honest, spiritually speaking, about ourselves. If your life, and if you're being honest, is marked by a casual Christianity, a compromised godliness I would wager to bet that it's because you've lost sight of the holiness of God you've lost sight of who he is he's no longer God almighty it's God almighty you've domesticated him you've made him down to size made him to fit into your life he doesn't In fact, just just notice how verse 4 ends. It says, And the foundations of the thresholds at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. The, The foundations shook. Because of the, the, the this song regarding the holiness of God, the very place in which Isaiah was standing was rock. When you grasp the holiness of God, you will be rocked to the very center of your being. You know, we, in our call to worship, it was from Psalm 96, and it says in Psalm 96, Worship the Lord in holiness. 
And then it adds, let the nations tremble and all the earth shake. What shakes you? What moves you? What grips you? You are made to be rocked to the core of your being by the holiness of God. So so that's been our first point and our longest point. Isaiah encountered in his vision a vision of God in all his holiness. But secondly, let's move rather fast now. Isaiah's vision of God's holiness led him to recognize his own sinfulness. Here's the thing. When you begin to see God as he really is, you begin to actually see yourself for who you truly are. Uh, John Calvin, his most famous book is his Institutes of Christian Religion, and it's divided into two books, and it's the knowledge of who God is and it's the knowledge of who we are. When you know who God is, you'll know who you are. And Isaiah, as he's confronted with the holiness of God, listen, he's moved to consider the true reality and the depth and the ugliness of his very own being. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There in the throne room of heaven, Isaiah comes apart. He is undone. He has this profound realization that he is more sinful than he's ever dared to imagine. You know, um, one of the TV shows I love watching, I've not watched it for a long time actually, but when I do watch it, is CSI. Crime Scene Investigation. And um, there's always a moment, isn't there, in, in these crime dramas where the investigators and the forensic researchers, they go to the house where the crime has been committed and they, um, they dim the lights and they put on their UV lights. And, and what initially looked like a clean, spotless home under the gaze of the UV light exposes all the filth, all the, all the evidence that a crime has been committed, the blood, the bodily fluids, the DNA, the fingerprints. And I say that because here under the x-ray gaze of God, Isaiah feels his filthiness. He comes to see in the light of God's holiness how sinful he truly is. Now remember, he's a prophet of the Lord. He was one of the pious prophets. Probably he rose to become, outside of John the Baptist, arguably the greatest Old Testament prophet. He was a man who was called by God to speak the very words of God. That was his business. But notice what he says, where he felt his sinfulness in his lips. And you know what Isaiah realizes? He realizes what Jesus would later teach. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. You know, if there was a trail under the x-ray UV light of God, it was his mouth was filthy because his heart was absolutely disgusting. If you have read Isaiah, you'll know that in chapter 5, Isaiah has just been pronouncing, Woe is Judah. 
six times. Verse 8, verse 11, uh, verse 18, verse 20, verse 21, verse 22. And if you're a diligent Bible student, you know that things come in sevens. You get to the end of chapter 5 and you're saying, there's only six woes. Where's the seventh? Here it is. But this time, notice, Isaiah's not saying woe to other people. He's saying woe to himself. Woe is me. I am undone. You know, when Jaya Packer says one of the problems with modern Britain is that we think too many great thoughts about ourselves and we think too little or no thoughts about God. And if you want to think a serious thought about yourself in the presence of God's holiness, you are a great sinner. The wonderful truth about God is he doesn't expose Isaiah to his holiness. He doesn't reveal himself in this vision because he wants to destroy him. He actually wants to redeem him. Look at our third point. Isaiah in his vision receives God's amazing grace. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This must have been quite the scene. He's been watching these creatures singing, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. Then one of them swoops down, takes its tongs, there's the altar in heaven, picks up a burning hot coal, and then flies speedily to him. Imagine the trembling fear as he sees this fiery being coming close. But it doesn't come to destroy. It comes to save, to cleanse. Behold, this has touched your lips, says the seraphim. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. You know, if you're looking for the gospel in this passage, here it is. You see, there's an altar. And the altar is at the heart. Because altar says in God's presence... Sin needs dealt with. And for sin to be dealt with, a sacrifice has to be offered. Now just think about this for a moment, right? All we read about is that there's an altar with burning coals. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the sacrifice? Now if you want your mind blown... You need to look up. Because the one sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, the one whose the train of his robe fills the temple, the one who has been sung to, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. He is the king who Isaiah saw. And he is the one who will, in the fullness of time, step down from his throne, enter this sin-sick and broken world, and will die himself on the altar of a cross. How do we know it's Jesus that Isaiah saw? Well, that's why our other reading this morning was from John 12. See, John 12 is, is in that reading, uh, 
is quoted Isaiah chapter 6, verses that just immediately follow uh, verse 8. And there John says, Who did Isaiah see? Whose glory did he see? It was Christ's. Now honestly, here is the, here is the wonder of the holy God. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might be made the righteousness of God. He who was holy died for the unholy, died for the unrighteous. This is amazing grace. This is wonderful, glorious forgiveness. What a savior. Now, what's Isaiah's response? Fourthly and finally, we look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? So so just here he hears the voice of God. And, and what a moment that must have been. To hear God speak. To hear God's voice. I love what John Calvin says, right? Because of what he's just experienced, the forgiveness of his sins, his guilt atoned for, his sin atoned for, his guilt taken away. Isaiah's heartfelt rejoice is to cheerfully respond with saying, here I am, send me. If you know the, the part of the Bible, God's salvation always leads God's people to service. God's salvation always leads God's people to service. Thankful, grateful, Service. When you experience the amazing wonder of the forgiveness of God, the only fitting and appropriate response is to respond with a heart filled with thankfulness that says to God, whatever you want, whatever you, whatever you require, I will do it. Here I am, send me. You know, sometimes, right, as a pastor, I spend my time trying to coerce people to serve. It's so ironic. Because I don't need to do that. In a sense, God's salvation does that. When people are gripped by the glory of Christ's death on their behalf, when they realize they've been forgiven much, all they want to do is love much. You know, we can come to church, right, and we can go through the motions of this service. We can sing at the start, holy, holy, holy. We can confess our sins in Psalm 19. We can read God's word. But if we're just going through the cold duty of the motions, it is a revelation that we have lost sight of who who it is we are here to worship. And we have lost sight of who we are. And we have lost sight of what he's done. And we have lost sight of... Our appropriate response. As I conclude this, right, there's many things in this passage that have truly brought me to my knees. But there's one thing that leaves me speechless. Isaiah says that he saw the Lord. Every Christian here, you will see the Lord 
and you will not die. You will not be undone. Because when we see the Lord when he returns, in the blinking of an eye, we'll be made like him. And with unveiled faces, we will behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And we will be in his presence without sin. Whilst the angels still cover their faces because they can't look upon the dazzling intensity of the holiness of God, but you and I will. So glorious is our salvation. God takes sinful creatures, saves them, sanctifies them, makes us holy to be fit to dwell in his presence forevermore. And I suspect we will join the chorus and the anthem of the angels, and we will sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of, full of his glory, and we will sing what the angels don't fully appreciate, what they inquire to know more about. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain for us to receive all glory, power, honor, dominion, and authority. If that doesn't leave you speechless, you've not understood the wonder of your salvation. We will see the holy God in Christ. Let's pray. God, how do we respond to this vision of who you are? The only way we can respond is with humble and thankful hearts. We are in awe of who you are. We are in awe at the fact that the Lord of glory, the sovereign Lord who rules and reigns, stepped off his throne and became the sacrificial lamb dying on the altar of the the cross so that our sins could be atoned. And we, an unholy people, could be made right with a holy God. God, we realize in your presence this morning we are not deserving of this. We are such unworthy recipients. And even our response to knowing you and to knowing the gospel falls so far short. And so we pray that this morning that we would leave here different from the way we came in. That we might be sent forth from here with a spring in our step as we seek to give you our lives as holy and living sacrifice all in view of the incredible mercies we've received from your hand. Bless us, we pray now, as we prepare to come, to sit around the table, to feast with you. Help us, we pray, 
as we ready to meet you in this sacrament. We ask it in your worthy name. Amen.